You're listening to Story Power, the podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. These are the stories of everyday people changing the world. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. today's episode of Story Power Podcast, I am excited to welcome my friend Letty Shoemate. Letty is a historian as well as a podcaster. Uh, I got to meet Letty way back in the day, back in the beginning on these Instagram streets uh, through Speaking of Racism podcast. And I've actually even, I'm bragging here, I know, like, here I am. But I actually got to meet Letty last year. And it was one of the joys of 2020 for me because Tina and Letty and I got to hang out and get together. And that was really cool. So um, so I'm really excited that you agreed to be on Story Power. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And thanks for that awesome introduction because I feel the same way about the legacy trip last year, whenever I met you, I was like, this is real life. We're actually meeting each other in person and we can rant and do all the things in person and not just over text or Facebook, I mean, or messenger. So yeah. Right. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So Letty, instead of reading a bio for you and because our bios change all the time, right? Like tell us a little bit about who you are today. Yeah, so I'm a black woman in the United States. I am a historian. I'm a um, anti-racism educator. I'm the person who stirs the pot and challenges people whenever it comes to what you think regarding racism, white supremacy, bigotry. And I'm that person that's like, actually, you have the history wrong. Here's the real history. I have a huge passion for people understanding that history is more than dates and times and the surface. It's it's never just the surface. There are always, always a plethora of layers underneath everything in um, public schools and this entire education system does not do history any justice, in my opinion. And so, yeah, um, there's that. Uh, clearly, I feel some kind of way about that. Uh, and um, I'm, a, I'm a podcast host, yeah, of Sincerely Letty, which actually it's going to be changing soon. I'm going to call it History Shows Us. I'm always saying, you know, history shows us, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, just call the podcast History Shows Us. So yeah, so I love my podcast. I, I love being able to allow people to hear me whenever I'm talking about history. I it's it's not the same sometimes for me whenever it's just um reading, right? I as a historian also love to watch interviews, hear the people talking at the time, um, that that kind of thing. And so whenever I do my podcast episodes and I get emotional or I'm reading something that's very heavy history because that's what I do on my podcast is I read things that make many people uncomfortable and things like that. But I want people to hear my voice crack. I want them to hear the emotion because this is really who I am, right? This is who I am as a historian. And I also want to say something else. I, and I'm just going to go off on this for just a second, Jen. Uh, I 
am not someone who just loves history. I am a historian. And I'm saying that on your podcast because what happens is often there are people who are like, oh, but I love history too. And I'm like, yes, you can love history. Being a historian is a craft. It is the ability to connect the dots in ways that I've seen other people cannot, even people who love history, right? That is not to minimize anyone who loves history and who loves to research and that kind of thing, but I absolutely am so grateful for the gift that I have. And that's why I share it with others also because I'm convicted to do this. And this is my passion and my purpose in life, I feel, or one of them, right. one of my purposes. So that's a little bit about me. I will... To go off of the more professional things, I love cats. I love food. I grew up playing the piano. I mean, people don't, don't know that about me, but I grew up playing the piano, which I actually credit that to my multitasking ability sometimes. But I'm also right now just in a season of life, to be honest. I feel like, you know, people don't talk about this a lot, but I'm just in a season of life of a transition in different ways and a growing phase mentally and emotionally with the help of my therapist and I'm grateful for all of it and I just wanted to say that on here especially as well because what happens I feel like often is people are inundated with these images and things on social media where it's like oh no one else is going through anything it must just be me let me tell you I do a lot on like social media I educate on different platforms. Yes, I have a Patreon where I'm doing live Q&As and all these things, but I'm also a whole black woman in this country. And yeah, just wanted to say that. One of the things that I really appreciate and is a goal of this particular podcast is to actually kind of lean into what you're talking about there, you know, like instead of presenting these picture perfect lives, instead of presenting, you know, our best face forward and what we think people want to see, what would it look like to have real conversations, honest conversations? And also I love like, yeah, you're famous at this point, <laughs> but I love, I really love this idea of celebrating the everyday person who gets up and does their thing and follows their passion and in doing that changes the world. And, and like we don't have to have massive platforms. Oftentimes people don't have that. I just talked to Christina Button the other day from Black Women Plant Seeds. Yeah. And, and she was talking at one point about how when she wakes up in the morning, this thing is on her heart and her mind. And it's like she can't not do what she is passionate and feels called to do. Mm -hmm. So for you, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. And it is that. It is often for me something I have to do is I have to slow my mind down um, because I will get overwhelmed with all the things that I want to do and all the things I want to say and tell people. Like, I will get so overwhelmed. And I've yeah. there are some days, honestly, Jen, that I'm like, I wish people could just see what I'm doing, like see just a little bit of my to-do list. And I don't mean that as in, 
oh, like mine's longer than anyone else's. No, but we all experience and carry the weight or different weights in our lives in different ways. So what for me may be difficult for you may not be, or what for you is difficult for me may be just very simple, right? And I say that to say, really, for me, I have to be very mindful, and I'm learning this, of what I give my energy to. Because so much of my energy goes toward reading, researching, creating content. I create all my content. I do all my things right now. And people ask me, oh, like you don't have a like assistant or whatever. And I'm like, well, really for me last year, I blew up on social media so fast, so fast in the middle of a pandemic, which we are still in, but in the middle of a pandemic, you know, right after we learned about Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, then I'm getting all these followers, which I'm grateful for. Don't, don't get me wrong, but it happened so quick. And then I started my Patreon and that happened so fast and tons of patrons and I was so happy about it. And then um, I had some personal life things happen in, in October and then it was 2021. And so I still, what I'm doing is, yes, it's my purpose. Yes, it's my passion. I know that in my soul that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. That doesn't mean that life stops. It doesn't mean that all of the other things don't stop happening. It does not mean that I don't still struggle with things every day, right? I mean, we're all, I feel like, fighting or navigating things that we do to ourselves, right? Like we're our own worst enemies with certain things. And I will say that about myself. And there are things with with me where I'm like, people don't know that I struggle with this thing. They don't, they don't know that procrastination is an issue of mine and that that's rooted in childhood trauma for me. They have no idea, right? They don't know how that shows up. They don't, they, they don't know um, the avoidance and how this stuff really manifests. And so I'm glad actually I'm talking about this here on this podcast because it's just real fucking life. Are we allowed to cuss on your podcast? Yeah. Okay. Because um, we're talking about real life. Yeah. Real life has profanities. Yeah. Gathered. Yeah. It's real fucking life. And that's also the why I really try my best to just be the real me. But really, Jen, to get back to what you actually asked me about what does it look like for me every day kind of thing, that's really it. It's showing up and and just showing up how I am going to show up that day. I feel like something else is giving myself grace whenever I'm not as quote unquote productive as I feel like I, I should be. And that's an unlearning process for me, again, thanks to the help of my therapist. And I have so many ideas and dreams of things that I want to do, ways that I want to connect with people or cultivate those connections um often it's remembering that what i'm doing is how i'm doing it and what i'm doing matters and often people joke about oh well people should just mind their business and keep their eyes on their own paper no but really it's something i have to remind myself of because again we're inundated with these images and these things that everyone else is doing and so you start to feel like you're not doing enough 
if you're not doing what this person's doing too. That's what they're doing and that's fine, right? But you have to protect your peace. You have to protect your energy. And especially being a black woman, I have got to be aware of that. And I really am intentional about it because I do not get a break. I do not get a damn break. I will sit here and read things that are horrific. I don't read fiction books. I read history often. Everything that I do, I'm engaging. There are not things that I do where I'm not engaging. I don't work a job where I'm just entering data or filing paperwork. That's not what I do. I create my content. I am responding to messages. I am preparing for panels. I am just trying to think of more things to do while also managing my own damn personal life and the mental and emotional shit that's going on there. That's a lot, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's a lot. But for me, what is something that I always go back to and depend on and lean on for me is God, is God. And that's not to say that's magical God that just solves all the problems and everything's hunky-dory. No, mm-mm, no, 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 no. Not that one. Not that God that people have created in their minds, just like the white Jesus people have created, right? It's not. That's not my Jesus. And that's not at all. No, 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 no. Let me just make that clear. I am not one of those Christians, okay? <laughs> like, that's not me. I am someone who is very aware that Often the answer is yes, and often the answer is going to be no, or it's going to be not yet, or it's going to be wait. And, you know, people look at me now and they're like, oh, like you're this historian and you're, you have all these followers and all you, and, and you're doing these things. Yes, I am. And I'm so grateful, but I have not always been here. This is not who I've always been. I graduated with my master's in history in 2015. And after that, I worked at an eye doctor's office for a year. Then I worked in corporate America at a pharmaceutical company for two years. And while working at the pharmaceutical company, I was on my lunch break teaching history at the community college that was a few blocks away. I did that for a year and a half, three days a week. I would work as a college adjunct professor while working a very stressful corporate America job. And see, people don't know that about me, right? And so that's right. why whenever I talk about being humble and I talk about, and I talk to people about my experiences and that you may not be doing what you want to do right now, but you will get there. I literally have lived it, right? And these jobs are also jobs I had where I was having to deal with racism. I was having to deal with white supremacy culture. I was having to deal with being the only black person working there or being looked at with, with my natural hair out or whatever it might be or just, and people who are listening who are black and who are brown can probably relate to what I'm saying whenever it comes to just that subtle racism that other people, white people, would not notice, right? And so this is why I am very grateful for where I am right now. And I still have so much more that I want to do, right? Like I didn't come this far to only come this far. I'm just thinking back to like when I met you, do you remember sitting outside the hotel with Tina talking about, do you have a Patreon yet? You should really put together a Patreon, mm -hmm. right? And like talking about these things that you were doing. And one thing that I really remember is that the people who were in our group on this trip, you are a teacher. Like you just have the spirit about you where you want to teach people and educate people. 
And that is a gift. But I, I just had this, I have this memory of, of people just kind of surrounding you and being like, Letty, you give so much. And like mm-hmm. this sense of like, and, and you just, it's so clear that this is a passion for you and you weren't looking for accolades. You weren't looking for acknowledgement, recognition. And for a while there, you weren't really getting Mm-mm. what I think and what I perceived that you should have been getting. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I love that. Like, here we are a year later and I, I got to know you in this time and place, you know, and to see the way it, and how it went so quickly into just something totally different for you. And I think that's yeah. such a beautiful reflection of your dedication and who you are. But one thing I'm curious about, because, you know, it occurs to me that, like, as we're sitting here talking, a lot of the things that we're talking about is in direct relationship to the fact that we exist so much online now. And this Mm. entire world, like for me, I remember back when I was like the stay at home mom squatting in my closet, speaking into a telephone, you know, and wondering what this whole Instagram thing was right to Mm -hmm. now being in this place where it's like speaking of racism has over 60,000 followers. You also mentioned how your account grew astronomically last year during Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor's cases and the national attention on that. You know, one of the things that we actually did on Speaking of Racism was we stopped engaging for a while because we knew there was going to be this onslaught of followers and people coming in. And um, and so watching that happen, I'd be interested to hear from you, like, what did you see that was positive from that? What did you see that was negative from that? Like, how can we approach things in a different way that actually creates change and impacts change in the fight for Black lives, as well as in solidarity with the AAPI community? Last year, whenever I got this influx of followers, right, it was really, and I'm going to say this here because I feel like something that's not acknowledged enough is the psychological component with just people, right? Just yes. the foundational human nature of what happens whenever people are at home. Many people were at home, not everyone, but many people that did not have to work. The front lines, right? Right. They, your emotions are already all over the place, right? And then you're, you're seeing this video of a black man being hunted and killed by white supremacists, racist white men. Okay. You also are hearing about Breonna Taylor and what happened to her and being killed in her bed and George Floyd's video of his murder went viral. And there, Jen, there were so many white people who were just like, oh my gosh, what is going on, right? And yes, I'm a black person who gets frustrated by this because I'm like, for me, I'm like, this is nothing new. And we've been telling y'all this. Racism is not a new thing. 
it's been here. And now though, what's happened is because you're at home and you're already in your feelings, your mind is, I don't even know the correct terminology for this. So I apologize for anyone who's listening, who is actually trained in this and knows the correct wording, but like you're just, your emotions are just on a hundred and you're like, oh my gosh, what can I do? I need to do all the things. This is terrible. And then what happened though is people lost interest because they thought that black lives were trending. Okay. And this happens every time a black person is murdered that people know about. I'm going to put that part in there because y'all, it happens more than you think it does. <laughs> it's not just the ones that you see on the news. It's, it happens so often. And I was glad, Jen, to see white people actually being like, what can I do? Because I truly believe that it came from a place at that time of, oh my gosh, this is horrible. On a surface level, human, just how people are, human nature. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. I feel like because social media, there is stuff everywhere, especially on Twitter and Instagram, there's stuff everywhere and people don't know what to look at. And they're trying to just, people can get so overwhelmed. And this is what I tell my Patreon community often. It's, you're going to be inundated with things. You have to choose how much you are taking in And that is not to say that you get a pass whenever it comes to being anti-racist. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What I mean is that we all can experience burnout from whatever burns us out. Whether that's being on social media a lot and your emotions are just heightened, whether that's you're angry and you're frustrated and you're dealing with your own white guilt and you're like, I just don't know how to, I don't think that I'm this kind of person and now I'm mad because this person is calling me out and this black person is... Whatever the hell it might be, burnout happens, right? And so I feel like people really need to be aware of that and know that it's going to happen, okay? And listen to us, people like myself, and I tell you, be aware of that. This isn't, listen. That's so good. If, uh, yeah, I mean, because if, if I sat here and told people how often I deal with racism or I deal with bigotry or white supremacy, I would not be here. I mean, granted, I honestly feel like black people have a different level of resilience than anyone else, to be quite honest with you. I don't, it's just, yeah. But I also remember last year, and even now, what's happening is because I really pay attention to especially my Patreon community and what we talk about during our live Q&As and things. And white people do get discouraged. And I'm going to address this here. Because white people are like, I just feel like I'm just not doing stuff right. I feel like I'm just making all of these mistakes. And I will be someone who sits here and this may rub some people the wrong way. I'm going to say that, yeah, I can see how that would happen, especially whenever with many things, white people are grouped together as this homogenous group of people. Okay. Now, yes, whenever it comes to being or to upholding white supremacy, whenever it comes to upholding racism, I am going to sit here and say that, yes, collectively, this is what white people do. But whenever I have people who are asking me on a live Q&A, like, I just have a question. I'm just unsure about this. I had this issue with a neighbor And I didn't call them out whenever they were saying something racist because I froze. 
but I usually would have called them out and I just feel terrible about it. And I'm trying to navigate that. I am not going to have a productive conversation with them if the next thing I say out of my mouth is, well, you should have known better. Well, you should have just prepared. Hell no. That is not, that's absolutely not productive to me. And I say that also to say, though, it depends on how the person's coming at me, okay? Because I'm not, I'm not going to coddle white people's feelings. Absolutely not. But what I have said in those kinds of situations is I have said to them, okay, it's good that you recognize that you should have said something because you absolutely should have. Because as a white person, you have to hold white people accountable when, whenever they are racist, right? And I said to this person, I remember, I said to them, I know that you have been working at this, though, because you've shared with me other times. I mean, you have called people out. I said, sometimes there are other things going on in our life where in that moment, we freeze and we don't know what to say. I said, but take that, take that and remember, this is where I messed up. Let me put that in a note on my phone or write it down, whatever you have to do and be ready for the next time. That's also why I tell people, the same way you prepare for a presentation or a job interview, whatever it might be, you have to, you have to prepare yourself as a white person to go out here and call out racism. Because me preparing, that started whenever I was little. There, there wasn't a, my parents sit me down and talk to me about, okay, this is what you say if someone's racist. Absolutely not. It was more of you're born into this and you're a black person and this is what you're going to have to experience. It was just you you just have to learn. Because this really does frustrate me whenever I feel like there are people who are really trying. They're going to fuck up. They're going to fuck up. Right. (laughs) And so I'm like, if you tell people they're going to fuck up, you also right have to be prepared for whenever that happens and how you're going to address that person. Now, let me be very clear. There are people where I'm like, I'm not entertaining this question or I'm, I'm, I'm not going to coddle your, your feelings right now. I'm not going to deal with blatant racism, any form of racism. Um, I'm not going to deal with uh, you wanting to defend white supremacy. Absolutely not. I'm going to answer you and I'm going to use it as an opportunity to educate you. If you... And that's not because black women's jobs are to educate people or black people's jobs are to educate people, right? But I am a historian. What I do is educate about history, right? So uh, I cannot educate about history without also educating about racism and white supremacy and also with that anti-racism. So if that person, right, who I've said something to directly does it again, that's when I'm like, you're choosing to remain this way and this is an issue. You need to deal with this on your time. Anyway, on your time, you need to deal with it. But I really am like, I'm I'm not going to do this with you. I really hope that made sense here. But yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is really, you know, you're helping walk people through building their shame resilience in a way that honors their humanity and also honors your boundaries. Yes. And that yes. is a beautiful and difficult thing I think to try to navigate it is it is exhausting sometimes and to be honest I don't do that all the time sure there are times I just cannot but like on my patreon for example um, every month I do a live Q&A which is available to some of my tiers and I'm I know that to do that I have to be prepared 
Do I show up how I show up? Absolutely. But I'm also there because I'm extremely grateful for my patrons. And I say that because, yes, pay Black people. Yes, pay Black women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pay me for my time. I also am someone, though, Jen, who knows that they can be giving that money to anything or anyone else. Right. And so I I also, me as Letty, I have that perception. Doesn't mean that I'm not still like, you need to pay me. No, but it also means that I'm grateful and that I'm glad that you're attending the live Q&A because really the same people usually attend every time live. And I have seen growth in them. I recognize that. I'm, I'm also someone who pays really close attention and I, I don't even try to do this, but I pay really close attention to patterns, behaviors. I silently observe all the time, like oh. all the time, right? <laughs> like if I'm saying something about a person's character, know that I have observed it silently for at least a couple of months before I'm speaking on it, right? And I've actually taken myself out of it to be like, unbiased in a way if 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 that makes sense yeah, um i don't actually just emotion yeah so uh yeah but it it is like shame resilience in a way and that's why that's also the why i am glad that i have this perspective because it's like yes not here for your racist crap but also my patrons know that most of them know the ones that attend these live Q&As, my webinars and things, know that I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to hold you ac- There is not going to be a you get away with it. No, if someone asked me a question on a live Q&A and it's, they said it the wrong way, I'm going to tell them, like, this is actually how you need to say this. Mm-hmm. Because whenever you say it to someone else, they may not have this patience with you right now. Or like, like the way that I have right now, right? So I use it as I want them to do better. I want them to know, oh, okay, I'm here in this space with Letty, who I've been in this space with for a few months now. And I know that she's telling me this because she wants me to do better. I'm, I would hope that they understand that, you know, many of them by by this point. And so I, I use it as an opportunity to teach. Yeah. And it is a lot. And it's a strength that I'm glad that I do have and if any of my patrons are listening, this is not to say that my Patreon is a burden or any, or anything like that. This is just the truth, right? Like This is just the truth. And in all honesty, like listening to you speak about your Patreon, it hasn't come across that way at all whatsoever. Um, one thing I do want to say is people can't see your face, but I can see your face. And you lit up. At one point when you were like, you particularly lit up when you talked about the fact that you see people changing and you see that this work that you're doing is impacting people in a deeper way. So I just Mm -hmm. want to acknowledge that because I noticed that. And it's like, I I feel like that's probably part of that thing that motivates you. Um, So just to kind of go back to uh, what we were talking about with an Instagram. So you noticed a huge uptick in followers and engagement, but you probably also, like everybody else on these platforms, noticed an absolute like nosedive or plateau. We live in this consumerist society, right? Consumerist, capitalist, white supremacist, all of these things. And we're using this platform that 
for its good and bad, tends to mimic and parallel the consumerist, capitalist, white supremacist sort of models. Mm -hmm. And so you see just a lot of uh, rapid consumption. And I definitely did this. Like last year, when everything was happening, it's like, for me, I just felt like I need to amplify, amplify, amplify. I need to put it out there, put it out there, put it out there, and like engage it, engage it, engage it. And at some point I realized like, I'm perpetuating harm in doing this and I need to slow down. But there was this thing in me that was like, this is literally life and death. And damn it, I want people to fucking see this and get this, right? And, and I'm an eight. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> and before before I knew about the Enneagram, oh my gosh, you are an eight. That's right. I That's am. why everything you're saying is like, <laughs> Letty, I love mm -hmm. you. Yeah, I love it because <laughs> Tina is too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, but like, so there's that part of me too that's like, man, I just want to tell everybody because I really believe deep down in my heart that like, if people knew what I know, then things would change. I had to learn last year at the beginning of all of this that I needed to slow down. I needed to take a deep breath that yes, while this is life and death and this is very important, it is also important to do things in a way that are sustainable for the long term because this work mm -hmm. is long term. And mm -hmm. so thanks for letting me process that a little bit. Yeah. But I guess, yeah, what I'm asking is, what do you see as the reason behind the uptick and fall? And do you see any uh, way to approach it differently? Yeah, so one thing that continuously stood out to me in my mind while you were talking is boundaries and understanding that boundaries are not just things that you apply to interpersonal relationships. Like it's not just about boundaries with your friends or boundaries with work and life. No, it's deeper than that. Boundaries with yourself and what you can and cannot take in and how much of it you can and cannot take in. And if if you know that first thing in the morning, you like looking at the news, you get in a bad mood like the rest of your day and that hinders you from being able to really be open-minded about things, then change what you look at first thing in the morning. That doesn't mean don't look at it. It just means change what you look at whenever you first wake up. Right. Like I have to do that. I don't I don't look at my phone for an hour, maybe longer than that. Sometimes hour and a half and I first wake up and this is me out here doing this. Right. So it's just things, small things like that. And that's just one example. But because I also like to give tangible things for people to visualize even. But sure. it's just boundaries, number one. But I also believe it's just it comes back, Jen, to white people being exhausted about something that they realize is going to cost them something if they actually do more about it. And until white America gets that, we're going to still be here. We're going to be in the same damn spot because I don't get to use exhaustion as an excuse. Amen. I, I don't. I, I, I don't. And if, I used, used exhaustion or oh, my feelings are hurt or whatever, I would never leave my home. I would never, I, I, I would just never leave. And 
this is why I love James Baldwin so much. <laughs> because something that James Baldwin talks about in all of his writing is the price of the ticket. And whenever Baldwin was writing in the early 50s, early late 50s, and his writing in the late 70s, early 80s, you're going to see a change a little bit because he gets more and more frustrated. He gets more angry. Not that he was never not angry. He just gets more angry and frustrated at the fact that white America does not want to acknowledge the fact that the price that you pay is very high. And there are many different explanations that Baldwin gives for the price of the ticket, but I'm just going to say that for me, it's what I always think about whenever I think about how white people are like, I just, no, I'm not, I'm not giving up on it. I just, I just haven't been posting a lot. Well, until you admit that the reason is maybe because one of your white friends isn't going to invite you to some gathering later on this year because you're speaking up too much about racism, until you actually admit that and admit that you're more concerned about the feelings of other people than what you know that you want to be doing or that you should be doing, how are we going to really progress? It, it starts individually. Yes, this progression is a progression that needs to happen for this country, but the word progression is also just this buzzword that pisses me the hell off because progress actually requires action. And if you're not taking action with yourself, then how do you even expect to be able to show up out here and be the anti-racist person you claim that you are? Does that make sense? Uh-huh. What <laughs> I just said makes sense. I was just like going off on a thing for a second there. It sounds like you're speaking to like something I was thinking about. It sounds like you're speaking to people who are already actively pursuing or desiring or claiming or hoping or endeavoring to be anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And so yes. even within that, what you're seeing is this quote unquote burnout or fatigue um, also we say ghosting, right? Like ghosting mm -hmm. of the work. I mean, I was really troubled by, this is just a side note, and I do edit myself out a lot, just FYI. Um, <laughs> but I was really troubled because when we were doing like the run for Ahmad, mm. I saw people, you know, posting their I ran for Ahmad shit, like literally people who block me. And then there was just this like gut punch when I saw these people and I'm like, you mm -hmm. get a little pat on the back and then I don't hear boo from you afterwards. Yes. Nothing, you know, so that really infuriated me. But that's no, I I get that. I actually I hope that you keep that in because that's actually really <laughs> that's actually really good. And and it's yeah, I mean, because that was so performative, the whole run with mod that was so performative and locally here in Wilmington, North Carolina, there were people I saw posting that and I'm like, you don't ever say Black Lives Matter. Uh -uh. You you don't say it. You're saying run with mod because it was popular at the time. It's very performative, right? And again, it goes back to being the surface level thing of, oh, okay, see, I'm doing this thing. Because I think what happened with that was White people try to absolve themselves from any accountability and responsibility whenever it came to 
racism and white supremacy because I feel like what happened is people saw, oh, but see, I'm running with Maude and I'm outside and I'm active anyway because it's we're in this pandemic and now I'm going to put this hashtag with it, but I'm still racist. I still actually don't care about the fact that a black man was hunted down and murdered because whenever people were speaking out about it, I'm like, oh, well, he should have just been paying right. attention to where he was running. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's there's got to be people have got to understand that the Amans of the world, my my brother could have been Amon. My friends that I have who are black men could be a mod. This is a real life thing. This is not just something that's an isolated incident. History shows us this. History shows us this time and time and time again. And just because you don't know it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Just because you don't want to acknowledge the racist history across this country where black people were absolutely hunted down Hunted down by mobs of people and not even just by mobs of people. Let's just take that whole thing out in the picture for just a second because people want to think that it's just the Klan doing this and big white mobs. No, I'm talking about just people in their homes who decided one night to go down the street and brutalize or murder a black man, a black woman, a black boy or a black girl, period. And so whenever we talk about this stuff in 2021, Stop thinking that it's just started happening. Stop with this whole, and I feel like there's still this lingering idea of, oh, see what that's, but that's what Trump did. But seeing this is what Trump's America is. Do not give him credit for that. Absolutely do not, because then it absolves America as a whole from having any responsibility in the absolute terrorism that it has absolutely co-signed since the beginning. It's not just about Trump. It's, it is not just about the, the, the Trump supporters. I don't care if someone in your family did not vote for Trump. If they aren't, if I'm getting really heated, Jen. Like, this is one of those things. Like, people were like, oh, that's so horrible. This guy was hunted down and murdered, and we can go and we can walk for him. But when you ask us to confront our anti blackness, when <laughs> you ask us to confront our history, then we're done. And then we're out. And I think this would be a good, unless you wanted to continue there, I think this would be a good shift into the importance of historical context and the fact that we live a disembodied context. I know Mm -hmm. it's this popular term, but I have really been experiencing and moving in and, and understanding more and more how disembodied I have been how whiteness has disembodied me from my ethnicity, how my white evangelical framework disembodied me from Jesus, not white Jesus, right? And right. and so, and I remember like when I first started this journey, like 10 years ago and really dug in, history is what I clung to initially. And so like Letty, when I met you, I remember thinking like Letty is who I want to be when I grow up. She's a historian <laughs> and uh, like has gone into mediation. Like these are my dreams, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I love it. Aww. And so I would love to just hear from you because one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, aside from, you know, I get to hang out with you and chat, <laughs> is like to the, the heart of this podcast is this concept of uh, disruptive storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. And disruption, mm-hmm. 
And I can't think of a more profound form of storytelling than history. I thought history was just this set of data that got Mm -hmm. plopped in front of you with dates and times and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I knew, yeah, because of my indigenous roots and Mm -hmm. the the absolute distortion of history and my ancestors on that side, like I knew the winners wrote the history, Mm -hmm. but that's all I knew. Yeah. So storytelling. Yes, that is absolutely what history is. I used to hate history. History, growing up, was like, this is not what I enjoy. Now, I did enjoy social studies. I enjoyed in middle school. I remember loving social studies because I had a class one time and it was about, it was Social, I don't really remember exactly, but I know that it was something with Africa. And I remember I did a project on Botswana and I was, I mean, at this point, this is like the late 90s or no, sorry, early, early 2000s. And so you're still having to use encyclopedias and things like that to do research. But I remember I was just like, oh my gosh, Africa is beautiful. Like, wow, like Ghana and Tanzania and Botswana, I I was learning about these countries because I was researching, yeah, seventh grade. I would never forget it. And I was like, wow, so this is what it's like for real. It's it's not the images I keep seeing on the commercials of the black children who are starving, right? And that, I believe, was maybe whenever I early on started to no, okay, there's something bigger out there. Like, there's a bigger story. I didn't tap into it then. Because then I went to high school and I was like, why do we keep learning about all these old white men and wars with history? Is is history just <laughs> wars and things sometimes, right? Yes. And then I went to college and I was like, man, there's so much history that I did not know. And it's the way, though, that the history was taught. It's the way that I was opened up to the bigger library and the research and oh, it's just so much more. And then graduate school, wow. That was not, graduate school, getting your master's in history or getting my master's in history was not as simple as, oh, we'll go and compile the research and then write what's already been said. No, 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 no. It was, you read all that's been said about a topic you want to write about and you have to write what has not been said before and you have to support it with primary so, with primary sources And you have to do it well. Like you have to do it so you can argue against your like professors or like defend it against your professors. This this wasn't going to a class of 20 people and you and and the professor lectures the whole time for three hours because my graduate seminars for history were three, three and a half hours for three nights a week. And no, that's not what it was. It was you go to class. Usually they were in the evenings, um, usually around three o'clock where there may be be like a 631 and you would sit at a round table and there were maybe 10 or 11 students and you had to talk the whole time that's what getting your master's in history was for me <laughs> like that's that, that's what we did and it was challenging it was i i grew so much as in just as a person as a black person i grew so much learning about the black history and all these things but i also just grew and became the historian that I am now. And history is absolutely about the context in order to understand what we're dealing with today. You cannot look at present day and not connect it to the past. Usually people are like, oh, so you can pretty much connect anything? Yes, yes I can. And I don't say that in a cocky way. I say that because I know what I'm talking about. Right. Yes, I can do it. Like 
even today and the just the just all the Asian violence just and I'm like rubbing my face because it's just so horrific and frustrating because people are like oh my gosh this is just how how is all this happening all of a sudden this country literally you can go back to 1840s whenever you started to have people from China coming over to our country and the immense amount of anti-Chinese sentiment that was here. This is not made up. This is, no, these are laws and policies, racist laws and racist policies that were put into place. Like this is, you, there was so much political and social unrest, right? And this is why whenever I talk about intersectionality, whenever it comes to, yes, people use that term in the sense of, intersectionality when it comes to gender and race absolutely oh yes 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 but i'm so grateful that kimberly crenshaw coined that term because intersectionality for me also i take it to history you cannot just look at the history and just think that it's only racism that's just black and white Mm -mm. no 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 at the same time that the laws are written that said that black people are not allowed to testify in court um in the late 1800s that was also written for people of Asian descent and also Native Americans. And I'm using that phrase specifically because that's how it was written into the laws. This is not new. The, the immense mob violence, the genocide, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Like there were acts that were written by the government that were like no we don't want you here and then the the racist scapegoating the same scapegoating that happened march of last year whenever the previous racist occupant of the white house called it the chinese virus jen as soon as that was said i remember reading that tweet and i was like here we go yeah because it's the same thing Truly, it's it's the same. Uh, whenever you and people have to know that whenever you read like a paragraph about something in like history, know that there's a book that can be written about that. Always, I mean, you take things like yellow fever, or you take things like um, interracial marriage, right, and diseases, and the fear of the white people not being not staying clean and pure, oh my gosh. You know how many categories there were for people from countries in Asia? There were so many categories. There were over like 30 for people because what it also shows is the immense level of white fear for not being dominant anymore, right? Which is why you have, you had all the racist scapegoating you see all the racist scapegoating now. You cannot just look at history in a linear way. There is not a, all right, let's wonder about the civil rights movement. Okay, Rosa Parks. She sat down. Okay, and then we had Dr. King. And yeah, they had to go through a lot, but they were able to get the Voting Rights Act. No, 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 no. What you're leaving out is so much history about the violence, about the emotional and mental and physical terror 
that was enacted on black people that black people had to deal with. What you're leaving out is the fact that while this was happening and while we had the civil rights movement and while we had the protests then and all these things, what you're leaving out is the number of people who had bomb threats on their homes, the number of people who were just found dead on a street, in a car, anything. You're leaving out the number of people whose um, businesses were burned down who then did not have money for their families and who then maybe had to separate from their families and go somewhere else to try to find a job or something like that. What, what you're leaving out is the fact that Rosa Parks was not just tired one day. No. Rosa Parks was previously someone who would go around to the backwoods of the South and for the NAACP and she would talk to black women who were raped and sexually assaulted by police officers, by preachers, by deacons, by mayors, by governors. This is the stuff that you're not including. And so then to, to connect that to things like today, we talk about black women, right? And protecting black women is historical. There's, there's, there's reasons for this. It did not just start with Sandra Bland. It didn't just start with Breonna Taylor. And I'm, I'm sorry, Jen, I know I'm kind of just going off, but. No, but I'm thinking, you know, like just thinking about the ways in which our individualistic perspectives like to take and isolate an incident. Like everybody's an individual and it just happens in an individual bubble and there's no historical context or, or impact and it's just not true, right? Right, right. And also one thing that I really want white people in this country to grasp and to accept is the fact that white people have done horrible things in this country. Horrific things. I don't care how you feel about that. To be honest with you, I don't care about that. I don't care if you're like, but not my ancestors. Mm -mm, I don't care about that because my parents, my parents were born during the Jim Crow era. Okay. My grandparents were alive during the horrors of the Jim Crow era. Like, we're, we're black people. I, I, don't, I don't need for you to say to me, I just, yeah, I mean, but, but, but it's just hard to hear. It's, it's just hard to hear. I don't care. Because you want to know what's hard for me to continue to have to do? It's hard for me to have to continue to hear that. It's frustrating for me to have to continue to hear you use that, that same excuse. And it is what you were saying about such an individualistic perspective, right? Uh, this, this thing of, but not my family, but no, but we didn't do that. You are absolutely, as a white person, benefiting today from racism. You are benefiting from the system that your ancestors, your white ancestors were complicit in. I don't care if you want to say, but we, but my ancestors came here in the early 1900s. Good for them. You want to know what happened? From whatever country they came from in Europe, they then were able to assimilate into white culture here in America and they benefited directly because of that. I don't care if what your background is. And that's going to probably rub some people in the wrong way. But I say that because that does not matter. Whenever you start to try and take these little details to justify why you feel bad or justify why you aren't like them, 
that's whenever I know for a fact, I'm like, okay, well, then you don't know what you should be doing right now. Then you aren't where you think you are. Right. Because it's not about that. It is not about you. It's not about you. And if historically, if people had this individualistic perspective, we would not have, we would not have been able to have these, these enormous laws and acts for civil rights and human rights. Those would not have happened. If people, if people had this individualistic lens, had this selfish lens, people have got to be more selfless. They have got to, because whenever, and and again, it goes back to doing your own internal work. No one else can do that for you. You have to deal with your guilt. You have to deal with you wanting to be defensive. You have to ask yourself, why am I doing this right now? Why is that my first response? Right? Okay. Once once again, I went off on a tangent. I just. <laughs> no, it's good. Before I sidetrack us again, I'll just add to your tangent. Um, You know, one of my aha moments was when I started to learn about the history of race creation in the mm-hmm. 1600s and mm-hmm. to understand and to start to build a framework around this project of whiteness and what was created and what was lost and what was emboldened and how that impacted everything. You know, the the root system of our government, of our medical systems, of our education system, everything. That's when I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I have a lot of work to do and a lot to learn just about history so that mm-hmm. I could gain a better framework for what it was I was living in. There's this quote, there's this book that I'm reading have you read the book Who Will Be a Witness by Drew Hart? I have not. Okay. Have you heard of it? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to have him on the show actually soon. Oh, cool. But in his book, Who Will Be a Witness, there is this thing he talks about in chapter three, the supremacist captivity of the church. Just just in this, he says, to get a better handle on the captivity of the church to supremacist identities, mindsets, and ways of living, we need to know our past. The past is never just in the past. It lives on with us. It returns and remains with us in a variety of ways. It is most dangerous when it binds its victims without them knowing it. When we ignore the inertia of what has come before us, we are unable to resist history from puppeting us. Mm -hmm. We dance and jump on command without realizing why. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have chills just reading that, Mm -hmm. right? But it's like, that was kind of that time for me of realizing like, I am being pushed. We are all being pushed. There's this inertia behind us. And when we don't understand what it is. Yeah. Right? So Mm -hmm. there's our tangent there. uh... (laughs) No, but that is good. No, but... That's good. That's interesting. That's funny because it that actually reminded me of the James Baldwin quote that I want to read. Um, so I happen to know you are a big fan of James Baldwin. Right. In fact, you have tattooed. Yeah. What yeah. do you have tattooed? Share with us. Yeah, I have people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. Mm. And it's from an essay he wrote titled In Search of a Majority. And... I'm going to read it again, actually. People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. And 
It's such a deep quote. And this is how much I love this is it's on the most, I feel like, prime real estate area for a tattoo. It's on my forearm, my left forearm. And I also have another James Baldwin quote on my body. It's on my rib cage. It's love is a battle. Love is a war. Love is a growing up. And people read that sometimes on a post or anything and they're like oh like the sentimental love no he absolutely after that he says I'm not talking about the sentimental love what he means is the love that you have to cultivate to not see things from an individual perspective it's the bigger love it's it's not this love and unity and kumbaya no 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 it's not what Vaughn was talking about he was talking about the immense amount of love that it takes for you to forfeit your price of the ticket and to understand how high, like what the high price is like you're going to have to pay um, to be a white person in, in this country and what, and what you're going to do with that. And there's actually, okay, so there's a part, there's an essay Baldwin wrote called The White Man's Guilt. And I'm going to read a part in it about history because James Baldwin is my favorite. So let me also just say this about James Baldwin is he passed away in 1987, but James Baldwin posthumously was my mentor in grad school. That sounds odd probably to people, but what I mean is while I'm figuring out how to understand history and see black history, really see it, feel it, while I have a professor, his name when Dr. Glenn Harris, uh, he always told me that as a black woman and as a historian, I was going to have to be work five times harder than the five times harder I already have to work because I'm going to be challenged on all fronts. Because usually, you know who challenged me the most? White men, white men, right? But also it's because having an, an understanding of history also causes me to challenge black people and to challenge brown people. And anyway, Said all that to say, Baldwin's writing, his interviews, listening to him and watching him give his talks helped me to know how to see the history deeper. So there's a part in The White Man's Guilt where Baldwin says, History, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, The great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. That quote... Yeah, it's so profound. And it's just, his writing is just so eloquent. Oh my gosh. But that part that said, where where he said, it could scarcely be otherwise, since, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. Now, whenever I read that, I want people to understand that whenever he's talking about our frames of reference and our identities, you know, it makes you think of the people, the white people in this country who are so proud of the Confederate flag, right? 
so proud of these things. So this is my identity. It's not what Baldwin is saying. It goes back to the quote I have in my arm where he says, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them because you're trapped in this false history that you think is true. It is not true. But it's the identity that you've cultivated because you've also chosen racism. You've also chosen white supremacy. You've also chosen anti-blackness and you've also chosen to not be accountable for how you're continuing to perpetuate this. And because you believe history is a certain way, you get trapped in that. You get stuck in that because you're not unlearning it. You're not acknowledging that you're wrong. Right. You're, you're not. And there's so much more Baldwin said. Uh, I encourage people to just, yes, read Baldwin. But if you've never actually watched Baldwin's interviews, I encourage you or his, him giving talks do that because the way that he speaks, the way that he speaks, the way that his body language is, the the tone, all of that goes into him and 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 his writing. And I just hope that I'm doing Baldwin's work justice as much as I read it and talk about it and talk about him and who he was as a black man, as a gay black man in this country. Yeah. So uh, I was actually going to ask you if you had a book recommendation. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I think that clearly James Baldwin, you you know, you kind of answered that. But mm -hmm. any book recommendations right now that you would just, any books you love that you would recommend? Yeah, so I absolutely recommend The Blood of Emmett Till by Timothy Tyson. Okay. People need to read that book. It's um, it's a book that even I had to put down a couple of times because Timothy Tyson, the research that he did for that book, the research teams he had across the country to write that book, amazing. But it's the history about Emmett Till and his murder. People need to read it because what he does, and I'm going to go into this right just a second, but what he does in the book is he humanizes the white racist men the white racist women, the white racist town, the white supremacy. He humanizes them. And I don't mean that in a way to be like, oh, but see, he makes it seem like they're just, they, they, they just, no, 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 no. He humanizes them and he connects the dots to show you the depth of racism. He does it to show you that they were monsters, that they were not just, this was not isolated. This was planned. He does it to show you that you cannot take anyone in history and isolate them from what they've done. Mm -mm. And he like connects the dots. He humanizes Emmett Till. He humanizes Emmett Till's mother. He humanizes Emmett Till's uncle. It's, wow, it's profound. Um, so definitely, and also let me make clear, he humanizes the murderers in a way that if you don't, that if you read that book and you don't, want to burn the country to the ground, then you didn't read the book. Um, so definitely that book. And I would also say people need to read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, her writing already is amazing. Uh, but people need to read Cast. Oh my gosh, just read Cast and anything by James Baldwin. So. <laughs> but for people who want to know, there is a book you can buy of his like collected essays 
And if you're going to read James Baldwin, I would recommend reading The Fire Next Time. I would recommend reading The Devil Finds Work, If Bill Street Could Talk, and Just Above My Head. I can list them all, but those are the four that came to my mind. Awesome. And so another question that I'm starting to ask people, and I think I thought and identified it a little bit earlier, but uh, do you have hope? And what, what gives you hope? I do have hope. Yes. Some days, my hope is not as strong as other days. Thinking about, and this is just one example, thinking about the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd. I don't have hope for that trial. I don't have hope because I'm a realist as well. (laughs) I don't have hope because I know what America chooses every single time. And every single time America chooses white supremacy. Every time. And so, no, I don't have hope for that. But what I do have hope for in that is that it's going to make people, make some people, many people, not everyone, make many people see, again, the the injustice system that is in this country. So, you know, I don't have hope for justice for George Floyd as far as that trial goes. What I do have hope for is what's going to come after that. Um, but But like, I mean, just in general, yeah, I do have hope because I can't have hope well, sorry, I can't not have hope and do the work that I'm doing. I can't not have hope after reading the history. I, I, I can't. Me, Letty, I cannot say I've read the history and I've read the resistance and the resilience and the, the enormous amount of obstacles and brutality and horrific treatment of black people and brown people And to see how, though, I'm still here. Like, somebody, somebody survived the middle passage for me to be here right now, having this conversation. Someone survived the brutalities of slavery and did not give up. Did not give up. Somebody did not give up. My my parents didn't give up. My grandparents didn't give up. My great-grandparents didn't give up. They had to have hope. They had to hold on to something bigger than them. And I hold on to something bigger than me. I just have that faith. But I also understand, see, that to have that faith, you have to understand that we're on this earth, but this earth is not kingdom. There's not going to be collectively kingdom on earth. That is not how it works. But I, right, I can do what I'm told to do and be obedient in that. And in in being obedient in that is also me doing a service to my ancestors. So whenever people say like I am my I am my ancestors' wildest dream, I I am, I am because I am here fighting. I am here choosing to not be bitter, not be bitter every single time I have to deal with racist white people. Right, so. I do have hope because there are so many of us who are, who are speaking up and standing up. I do have hope because we have more resources now. We, yes, we, we do. It's, it's disheartening whenever I read though, primary sources in history. And I actually just read something recently 
I forget who said it or it was a black woman in the 60s, but she said one day people will be able to see what's happening. They'll be able to see it and something's going to change. And I'm trying not to get emotional right now because people do see it and they still say, but, but. I think about how they still didn't stop. I think about how, yes, the world was watching on Bloody Sunday and all of these things, right? And I think about how we have our phones and people watch George Floyd cry out for his mom. And they watched Eric Garner. They watched... Walter Scott, they 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 watched so many Alton Sterling, they watched Michael Brown, um, they watched Tamir Rice, a child, they they watched this stuff and it's still a but. But for me, whenever I know and I can see people individually changing and st- and standing up to their families and raising children. To understand what racism is, having those conversations, I have to hold on to that. Because if I didn't hold on to that, I would go crazy. (laughs) If I didn't listen to my parents who experienced so much overt racism, people wouldn't even believe the stories. I have to know that, like, they did that. And I am here. So what am I going to do? Right? What am I called to do? I have to do that. I have to do that. So yeah, I do have hope. So I just got emotional, Jen. Well, I did not expect that to happen. I have this weird thing where every episode I've recorded of this, I have cried. And I'm not an emotional person. And I was (laughs) like, I thought like, oh, I made it through. (laughs) And the the downside to being able to see each other, perhaps, is (laughs) it's just kind of it, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Tell us where we can follow you and support your work. Yeah. So you can follow me at sincerely.letty on Instagram. On Patreon, you can find me at Letty Shoemate. I have different tiers. I have six different tiers people can choose from. One of them is a book club. So you can choose which tier you want to join. And I offer something at each tier for you to be able to engage. So there's that. My website is almost finished. Yeah, that's exciting. So my website is lettyelizabeth.com. Okay. My first name and my middle name. Where else can people find me? My podcast. And yeah. So those are just some places that people can interact with me and learn some history. On Instagram, I do a Today in History post a few times a week. I reshare tons of content. I share other history facts and tidbits and things like that. And yeah. Letty Shoemate, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.